This episode of Awards Chatter is brought to you by Universal Television, presenting Girls 5 Eva. Girls 5 Eva follows a one-hit wonder 90s girl group who attempts a comeback while hilariously navigating family and relationships, plus the joys and pains of middle age. The show stars Sarah Bareilles, Renee Elise Goldsbury, Paula Pell, and Busy Phillips. Don't miss the series critics call the funniest show on television. Girls 5 Eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for Outstanding Comedy Series and all other eligible categories. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to episode 137 of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is a man who was one of the most successful executives in American television and now has reinvented himself as one of the top producers in American television, Warren Littlefield. Littlefield made his name at NBC, to which he was recruited in 1979 by the legendary Brandon Tartikoff and at which he rose from the job of VP in Comedy Development and Current Comedy to Senior VP of Entertainment to Executive VP of Entertainment and eventually to President of Entertainment, the job at the top of The Rock, which also happens to be the name of his excellent 2012 memoir. During his early years at the Peacock Network, Littlefield helped to develop shows like Cheers, The Golden Girls, and The Cosby Show, which established NBC as the place for smart comedy. When he took the helm in 1990, not long after NBC had topped the Nielsen ratings for an unprecedented 68 weeks in a row, many thought there was nowhere to go but down. But by deciding to target sophisticated young urbanites, he led the network to even greater success, most famously on Thursday nights. Must-see TV, as the network advertised that night, included during Littlefield's tenure Seinfeld, Friends, ER, Frasier, and Will & Grace, among other game-changing hits that generated more revenue for NBC than every other night of the week combined and dominated the competition in the ratings. Despite this great success, Littlefield departed the network in 1998, following personality clashes with his superior, Don Olmeyer, and became an independent producer, helping to bring to fruition a number of critically and or commercially successful shows, most notably FX's Fargo, the first season of which brought him an Emmy, and the third season of which premieres April 19th. Littlefield's latest high-profile project is The Handmaid's Tale, a drama series adapted from Margaret Atwood's acclaimed 1985 dystopian novel, created by Bruce Miller and starring Elizabeth Moss. Its first three episodes will begin streaming on Hulu on April 26th, and others will follow for the next seven weeks. Critics and pundits, including yours truly, already have gotten a look at it, and it currently stands at 100% on RottenTomatoes.com, which explains why it's one of the most buzzed-about shows of the season. Littlefield and I sat down at the offices of MGM, which produces Fargo and the Handmaid's Tale, for a wide-ranging conversation about his life and career. Among other things, we discussed how, logistically and strategically, executives program a major network, as he learned to do at NBC under Tartikoff, why the ending of Cheers in 1993 which initially seemed like a catastrophic blow to the network 
actually paved the way for a legendary 1994 pilot season that brought Friends and ER to NBC's lineup? Why Seinfeld, a show that struggled mightily in its first few seasons, was turned around by moving it from Wednesday to Thursday in 1995? Why Littlefield blames one of his NBC successors, Jeff Zucker, for destroying must-see TV, and credits another, incumbent Bob Greenblatt, for helping to restore some luster to the network? How he feels about Bill Cosby, a man responsible for so much of NBC's success during Littlefield's early years at the network, and, it has been alleged, atrocious behavior towards women as well. Why, despite having spent most of his career working for one of the major broadcast networks, his shows Fargo and The Handmaid's Tale wound up on cable and streaming, respectively, and much more. So, without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So, whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So, download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Mr. Littlefield, thank you so much for doing this. Really appreciate it. We always begin by asking just a basic one. Where were you born and raised and what did your folks do for a living? Ha! I was born and raised in Montclair, New Jersey. And my dad was a salesman for H.J. Hines Company. And my mom was a housewife. Mm-hmm. And as a kid, what, what were your interests and passions and was television among them? Very much television was. I played hooky from school a lot. <laughs> and I think my mom maybe enjoyed the company. And I would just stay home and watch television. But Stanley Campbell came to my house one day and said, there's a rumor you're dead. And I thought, ah, I probably should get back to school. <laughs> but I, uh, you know, I, I grew up in New Jersey, so the metropolitan area, million-dollar movie. You know, there was, uh, even then, a much different world. We didn't have infinite choice the way we do today. There was great stuff to find on television, and I immersed myself in the world of, of film and TV mm-hmm. because it was uh, there in my living room. And eventually you you go off and and graduate from Hobart and William Smith Colleges. This is upstate New York. And as you came out into the real world, what did you imagine your future was going to entail at that point? Well, I thought I would go to graduate school for clinical psychology, but I also wanted a break. So I hit the streets of Manhattan and I went in for an interview and it was some like monstrous insurance company. And they had a form test and and they sat down and they said you know fill out this this test and then turn it in and I was in a room with 150 people and I did that for about six minutes and then I went up and said I'm done 
And they said, well, you, you couldn't have possibly filled out everything on this test. And I said, oh, no, I, th- I think I'm done. Thank you very much. <laughs> and, and it just seemed to me that there had to be more. There had to be more than what that might entail. And I'd done high school drama. And Charlie Mortimer, who ran that junior wing uh, Montclair Dramatic Club, had started a production company in New York. His background had been advertising, and they're making a television pilot. And I said, can I be a gopher? And he said, sure. And that was it. That was the moment where I went, yes, this is what I should be doing. And they were small, scrappy companies. So I was the location manager, and I was the assistant editor, and I was the all-round go-to gopher on set. And I went, okay, I got to play catch up. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of things that I didn't prepare for in my education, but this feels like I'm back in touch with those childhood years of staying home and just watching content and loving it. That's what I want to do. And also, I guess, being creative as opposed to having to just conform to being a a guy at a desk, which sounds like what the, the other path would have been. Yeah, it was the first time since high school I had shaved actually (laughs) and that lasted for two or three days and I was just like nah no I'm I'm not going to conform and I'm not going (laughs) to I can't do that right so that that initial gopher job started a a string of things that obviously led to to bigger and better things I believe a giraffe factored in along the way was there a television movie what was your first time as a actual person with authority on a project. Ah, well, that would be The Last Giraffe. It was a book and and thought it had the potential to be adapted into a TV movie. Staple of television back then mm-hmm. were TV movies. There were hundreds that were made every year. So we sold it to an advertiser to fully sponsor it so that the big guys wouldn't muscle us out, so we wouldn't just end up with a piece of development. Mm -hmm. And I was 26, and I went to East Africa and produced a two-hour movie that was a 30-something share. And miraculously, the Hollywood Reporter said it was one of the 10 best movies of the weeks of the year. I'm not sure why they said that. (laughs) It didn't look like anything else because we shot it in East Africa. But that gave me a credit. Mm -hmm. That gave me, that was an incredible experience. And I learned so much about producing, being on a set, producing, having to be financially responsible. And then I uh, sold that throughout the rest of the world. And and the little production company I work for in New York actually saw its first uh, year ever of profitability. (laughs) That was exciting. And for anyone curious, I'm pleased to report it is available on YouTube. I checked it out last night. Is Uh, it really? Yeah. yeah. Oh my God, that's scary. (laughs) (laughs) So now, how do you, I I guess, uh, was it on the basis of of the success, the very entrepreneurial success of that endeavor that you then wound up at Warner Brothers Television? It was. My, My boss, Charlie Mortimer, said, thank you. And I'd been at the company for a couple of years, and, and I was a vice president. And he said, I want to make you president of the company. And I thought, oh, my God, I have to leave. I'm not ready to be president of anything, <laughs> not even a club. Uh, so I went to California, and, and, I, and I had a credit. 
and Warner Brothers hired me as a development executive. They said, uh, we'll make you a director of development. I was like, great. Yeah. <laughs> and for, as you understood it, what, what did that mean? It was find ideas, find writers, put it together, go out and sell shows to networks. I was like, okay. Mm-hmm. But they liked the entrepreneurial spirit and what I had accomplished for a very, very tiny shop in New York. And they took me in. And how and long were you there? I was there for six months. <laughs> because you get a call from Brandon Tartikoff, is that right? Brandon, and there were a couple of executives at NBC, Michael Zinberg also, and they said, come apply for a job in comedy development. And so I studied the first four episodes of The Facts of Life, <laughs> and I went in and they made me an offer. And they said, but the job was manager of comedy development. So I thought, hmm, okay. I have to stop you because The Last Giraffe was not a comedy. And the other things that you had done had not been in comedy as far as I know. So on what basis were they coming to you to specifically do comedy? Because I had six months at Warner Brothers doing comedy (laughs) development. there. Right? Okay. uh, But (laughs) – but. That's a good question. <laughs> I, I don't know if they like my They obviously instinct. saw something that was yes, true. They saw something. So I had passed up the presidency of a little company. I took the director job at Warner Brothers and now took a manager job. So I was rapidly going down in terms of job <laughs> title. And, and yet, for me, it was all about education. I've always approached my career as being... I felt a step behind that that there were there were a lot of people that I was competing with in the industry who had figured out from the time that they could walk that they knew exactly what they were going to do. And I didn't. Mm-hmm. You know, I had a more eclectic background and a de- de- degree in psychology. Mm-hmm. So uh, so for me, I thought I'm playing catch up. And I think that I've never lost that. Uh, I think I still have it today, and it's been good for me. Yeah, yeah. And just for any listeners who maybe are are not part of the industry, and we know we have those as well, let's just, if we can, contextualize what it meant to get a call when you did from Brandon Tartikoff at NBC. This is somebody who the New York Times has described as, quote, the most successful programmer in the history of network television, close quote. He had been a protege of Fred Silverman, who turned around ABC in the 70s. And then you became, it sounds like, in a way, a, a protege of his. Is that a fair description? Well, absolutely. It was a tremendous education. Brandon taught me just the love. You know, I love the medium. Brandon may have loved it more. Mm-hmm. He had such joy in being in the sandbox of television and content creation. And and we had dark days where where the sword was hanging over all of our heads. Mm-hmm. We could have been fired on any Friday night <laughs> for due cause. We had no performance, mm-hmm. and networks had to perform. Mm-hmm. And Brandon had a wonderful gallows humor. It was an incredible place to, to not worry about the failure of the past, but to look to the future. And that was an exciting, wonderful time. So the year that you first joined NBC was was which? December of 1979. December 1979. So he would have been, I, I'm sure, a person you encountered a lot. Another one, I guess, starting in 1981 is also late Grant Ticker. And he was the chairman of NBC at that point. Was he a big 
factor in your orbit? I think I remember reading about the first time you met him, which was memorable. Yeah. <laughs> Grant said, I hope you have a heavy winter coat. And I was like, well, we're in Southern California. Why? And he said, I've seen your shows. It's going to be a really, really cold year for you. And I was like, oh, my God. And, you know, Grant, Grant's gift to us. And we were all kids trying to figure it out, running around the network, trying to make sense of it all. And, and, and Grant, I think, instilled in us the sense of the audience is not made up of aliens from another planet. The audience we want to talk to, we want to reach, we want to connect with, it's all you folks here. Look at yourselves. You're young. You're college-educated. You're passionate about television. Make things that you want to race home and see and stop trying to guess mm -hmm. what this weird <laughs> audience might be. Right. Just program for yourselves right. and respect the audience. Mm -hmm. And it took us on a journey of aiming high, mm -hmm. and the audience rewarded us for that. And we began that in the 80s yeah. under the guidance of Grant who was not a, a man of a lot of words mm -hmm. and was not, unlike Fred, Fred would pitch you shows every time <laughs> you were in a room with him. Right. Fred would say, it was Fred who helped launch Hill Street Blues. Mm -hmm. He said, you know, well, one hour Barney Miller. <laughs> Stephen Bochco mm -hmm. happened to understand what that might be. Mm -hmm. But Grant raised the bar. He asked us to respect the audience and the rewards for that were sensational. Well, and, and to that point, as I, I guess the early 80s progressed, your job title changed a few times, senior vice president and then executive vice president of NBC Entertainment, working under Tartikoff at that point. And you helped to develop the Cosby Show, Cheers, Golden Girls. And I want to, you know, speak about all of those, but I think the most, the most interesting example in a way of what you're talking about, about having faith in the audience and not playing down to, to an imaginary audience might be Cheers because it sounds like from your wonderful book, Top of the Rock, which I encourage people to check out. Well, thank uh, you. No, it's terrific. I don't think I've ever read a better book about the business of television. One of the things, though, that you talk about was that in the first year of Cheers, 1982, it finished 72nd out of 72, I believe, in the weekly ratings one week. And a lot of people were For ready to- year. For a year. For the year. For the year. It was the lowest rated program on network television. Oh, my God. And and people were ready to naturally write it off. So I guess I have to ask you what it was that happened that allowed it to survive long enough and and evolve in a way so that it not only got better, it got a lot better and did something that only one other show, Lou Grant, has ever done, which is go from last to first. What happened with Cheers? Well, more than anything because it was great in the beginning. We loved it. Mm -hmm. We loved it. But Brandon and I were talking one night and saying, so what do we do? And Grant kind of wandered in, and Grant Tinker said, let me ask you this. Do you have anything better? And we said, well, no. <laughs> and he goes, well, I think you answered the question, right. so renew it. Right. And uh, – Look, the Charles Brothers and Jimmy Burroughs were brought into NBC to give us something we didn't have. 
we had different strokes and Hello Larry and Facts of Life and and they came to bring us a sophisticated adult comedy. It changed the DNA of NBC as a network. So it's a show that we would go back through the 90s and point to as this is who we are. And really, the foundation of must-see TV Mm -hmm. all came from that DNA. That was all the Charles Brothers and Jimmy Burroughs. They knew what they were doing. We were smart enough to get out of their way and allow them to do it. And speaking of must-see TV, which is obviously something you're very closely associated with, if there was a model for that in a way, it would have been, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like maybe the 1982 lineup where you guys had Fame, Cheers, Taxi, and Hill Street Blues. This was promoted as, quote, America's best night of television on television, close quote. And then I believe after 1984, internally at least, you guys referred to the Thursday night lineup, which at that point was... Cosby Show, Family Ties, Chairs, Night Court, and Hill Street Blues as your, quote, night of best, close quote. And then it was, I guess, starting in 93 under your watch that that we had a Thursday night lineup of Mad About You, Wings, and Seinfeld, which was the beginning of this whole run of must-see TV. But before we get into the the phrases, I just have a, a maybe a naive question, which is why is Thursday night more than, say, Tuesday or Wednesday night a night when people would want to put on their top shows. We kind of stumbled into it. When we had the Cosby pilot, we were aware that we had something that was truly special. We we had to go up against Magnum PI Thursday at 8 o'clock on CBS, and then they followed that with Simon and Simon. And we had nothing. <laughs> and And so Cosby became the anchor like literally turned on the lights on Thursday night. Now, we had cheers there, but no one watched it. But there was no reason to come to NBC for sophisticated adult comedy. We didn't have a history of it. We didn't, you know, how could, you know, we had a a five-watt bulb, right? If you were looking for that, why would you look to NBC? So what Cosby did is... We'll stay with the lighting allegory here. Cosby turned on the lights in a major way. And tens of millions of Americans came to NBC who had previously not been there. Mm -hmm. And they came on Thursday night. And then we had already had family ties. We stuck that behind it. We had cheers. We kept that right at 9 o'clock. And all of a sudden, with the strength of Cosby, the flow of the audience, the programs had always been sensational. Mm -hmm. We now had audience flow. We now had an explosion at 8 o'clock that could carry through. And lifted chairs and these others. Yeah. And then we had Night Court, which was also wonderfully fit into that Mm -hmm. framework. And we had Hill Street Blues, which was already an award-winning drama. Mm -hmm. And that kind of night that was the early assemblage where we were like yeah it's a night of bests and 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 it came out of we had no lights on on the night but we felt we deserved Mm -hmm. really because of cheers and hill street we deserve better on that night Mm -hmm. and what we later really kind of come to understand was for movie companies who wanted to open a, a movie on the weekend starting Friday night, well, they would pay 
handsomely in order to get an ad for their film on Thursday night because our audience was young adult men and women. Now, usually with comedies, you could get women. We had equal amounts of men, which was unique. And then millions upon millions of them. Why were they particularly drawn to the programming that you were putting on Thursday night? I think it was, it really was cheers. Certainly Night Court followed that sensibility. So did Hill Street. Mm -hmm. And then just everyone watched Cosby. Mm -hmm. And so we had these massive building blocks and, and then harder to get people's attention on the weekend. And the roll-up to Thursday became an advertiser place they wanted to be. And for the next 20 years, we had an institution. Absolutely. And, and which actually, I believe, you tell me again if I'm wrong, but because you guys were so strong on Thursday, the other networks tried to put on their best stuff on Thursday to, to come at you, right? For a while, they were pretty intimidated. Yeah. You know, at the height of must-see TV in the 90s, we were beating the combined competition, the other three networks, by margins of 60% wow. over their combined totals. <laughs> so we were, we became the destination. Mm-hmm. And our profitability, all the other nights of the week combined, would not equal Thursday. Right. And ultimately, at the height of must-see TV, 75 million Americans, which was a third of the country at the time, would watch Thursday night. So you were shunned if you didn't right, at, right. in the workplace the, the next day. Cooler, yeah. yeah, yeah. So just as a as a guy who does not begin to claim to understand the you know what what you guys did so well, let me just play devil's advocate. If you have four great shows and the decision clearly was made, or four or five or whatever it was, to put in one night, why would that not? work to, to spread them out across the week and assume that people would? Is it because people just don't watch anything that often throughout the week? Like why load up on one night as opposed to trying to build your other nights around a great show? Well, we created a colossal blockbuster of a night. Mm-hmm. We created a destination unlike any night that television has ever known. Mm-hmm. And then we had a piece of the puzzle called Frasier. <laughs> and coming out of Cheers. Mm -hmm. So as Cheers ends, Frasier begins. And we put it on Thursday for a year. And then what we realized is we were a a solid number two trending towards number one. But we realized that our future, if we wanted to be the number one network, we had to be more than a one-night network. Mm -hmm. And so we took our youngest and best draft pick, Frasier, (laughs) and move them to Tuesday night at Mm 9 and up against Roseanne. Mm -hmm. Smash hit ABC comedy. But ABC was our competition. Mm -hmm. They were number one. And we thought, well, look, that's a family comedy. It's a great show. But we're an adult comedy Mm -hmm. with Frasier. Certainly family ties Mm -hmm. within that concept. But we were playing in a different space. And we thought, let's be the number two comedy destination. Let's not have somebody else box us Mm -hmm. out. And it was very controversial. Mm -hmm. Paramount, the studio that made Frasier, flipped out. (laughs) There were a lot of threats. Because they wanted to be on Thursday. They wanted to be on Thursday, stay on Thursday. And, And our feeling was, rather than just be a satellite comedy sitting behind 
Seinfeld. It could really be a tentpole. It could be the center point of a night, the way Cheers had been. And we said, look, if, we've screw, if we screw it up, we'll move it. Mm-hmm. But we don't think we will. We think we'll stand quite tall. And ultimately, the value of Frasier, and then won five Emmys for Best Comedy, the value of Frasier was established by leaving the nest, mm-hmm. leaving that comfy 9.30 Thursday and going out and being a trailblazer. And absolutely, right before the premiere in August, ABC blinked and said, oh, my God, Frazier is going to <laughs> kick our ass right. with Roseanne. We're going to take our number one comedy, right. Home Improvement, and we're going to move that to Tuesday night at 9 because we are fearful. Mm-hmm. Everyone panicked at NBC. Oh, my God. That's it. We can't keep Frazier there. We're going to have to move it back to Thursday. <laughs> and I just felt really strongly mm-hmm. that, no, it's okay. Maybe we're not number one, but we're going to establish a comedy beachhead mm-hmm. on Tuesday. And that move propelled us to number one. The rest is history. Yeah. And, you know, I think the average Joe who sits at home and turns on his TV has no concept of the amount of thought and deliberation that goes into these decisions. And reading about you and reading about Tartikoff, it sounds like, you know, almost a, another limb in a way was the, I don't know what you would call it, the scheduling board with magnets or blocks or whatever to move these things around and just constantly strategize, right? Absolutely. And Preston Beckman was a key strategist for our strength and success in the 80s and through the 90s, must-see years, and then went on to uh, do the same thing for Fox and propelled them to uh, victory. That game, that chess game, with magnetic cards on a board. It was hard in my network years to close my eyes and not see that board. <laughs> right. Well, let's let's talk if we can about some of the other things that were happening as, you know, these various first the night of best and then must see TV were coming into their own. You were at NBC doing that stuff as cable was also emerging on the scene and I guess most notably with HBO in terms of entertainment, not news, which would have been CNN. But what were the earliest signs that cable was something to take seriously and that could, in a way, impact the game? And they never get the numbers that, that you guys get as as broadcast networks, but did they change your, your way of business at all? They did. Most of cable lived off of network reruns, and that was a very good business for them. Law and Order you know, built a network <laughs> at A&E. Yeah. But cable networks got smart and they decided that they would invest in original content. And HBO was aggressive and they really knew how to speak to the creative community with a creative freedom that uh, not advertiser-based. So networks were serving advertisers Right? So there were restrictions with broadcast standards that we had to adhere to. And along came The Sopranos on HBO. And it was a game changer. And ultimately, you had the lead of a television series kill someone on camera. Mm-hmm. And that was it. The landscape changed. It didn't hurt that show. It made that show. Yeah. And Tony Soprano, everything they did 
with the dramatic content as well as the humor was spectacular. And it just raised the bar. Was it frustrating for you at the, at, you know, folks in broadcast to, to feel that, A, you have to now compete in a way with a hand tied behind your back in the sense that these guys can say or show whatever they want. They can put out 10 or 12 episodes a season as opposed to the dozens that you guys would have to do. Is it, I mean, on the, on the other hand, I'm sure they envy the size of your audiences, <laughs> but, you know, it, it was the Sopranos that made you guys take the, take cable seriously. I think so. Um, that's certainly the one that leaps out to mm-hmm. me. I mean, there were there were movies, television movies, and and more of the event strategy, mm-hmm. but those you could forget. Mm-hmm. You know, you could go, ah, okay, that's a one time only. It was Sopranos that really nailed down the creative heights they could reach, the range of content they were able to do. And look, we still had a very strong and viable business, but we were playing a bit with our hands tied behind our back. Mm -hmm. We battled aggressively with broadcast standards because audiences weren't turning that content away. They were were finding it. They were going to it. They were coveting it as well. Uh, were critics and, and, and awards. And these guys will certainly, yeah, the, they started to be the big players at the Emmys. Now it's hard to find a broadcast show that, that can get a nominated for a series award. That's absolutely true. And so that was a game changer. And look, we were we were doing programming with Homicide, Life on the Street, with ER, mm-hmm. with Law and Order. We were doing, I think, some pretty groundbreaking, yeah. high-quality television. But they were able to play at another level. Yeah. So the the world changed. Sure. Now, even a few years before cable was fully in action, in 86, that's when General Electric acquired RCA and with it NBC. And I wonder how becoming a piece of a giant corporate conglomerate impacted your work at the network as well. Well, we we were in some ways blissfully ignorant. In the 80s, we lived in a world where there were a dozen channel choices in every home. And then GE came into our lives and they said, hey, it's not just about like, oh, we like this show, so put that on. (laughs) The world is changing faster than you can see it. And we rapidly entered an era that was not a dozen channel choices in the average home, but ramped up very quickly to 50, and then 100 channel choices, an age of infinite choice. Mm -hmm. And GE, actually, their kind of strategic thinking, they didn't tell us what to do. They said, you better figure out Mm -hmm. who you are and what you're going to be. And we also watched cable channels that were um, really, really well produced. So if you were on MTV Mm -hmm. and... uh, 24-7, 24-7, it was always MTV. Mm-hmm. They knew who they were, um, they identified who they were, and there was a whole sensibility that delivered on the promise of who they were, 24-7. Mm-hmm. Network television has a deal with an affiliate, and so we have a few hours of daytime, and then we have prime time. So. It's only a few hours a day 
that we're delivering content that's the network. So one of the one of the things we did in the 90s was we decided we had to produce the network. Mm-hmm. And that really came out of looking at the competition in cable. So what does that mean to produce the network? Well, it, it means that first and foremost, we had to have a vision for who were we going to be mm-hmm. and kind of redefine for the 90s that we were the network for upper educated urban young adults. Mm-hmm. And so our programming reflected that. Seinfeld, ER, Friends, Will and Grace, like we were portraying and speaking to that young adult urban audience. Now, again, maybe a dumb question, but young adults, urban or otherwise, don't make a lot of money, right? So from an ad, maybe that, maybe I'm wrong, but like when you say young adults, what's the age range that we're talking 18 about? 18 to 49. So okay, that's so it does spread. include, okay. Yeah, and so it was, uh, again, we were in the broadcast game, right. not the narrow right. cast game. Right. So that's a pretty wide path, mm-hmm. but we were doing award winning, yeah. which advertisers would pay more for. And we were, we were headed towards upscale, college educated, and so- Creators, artists wanted to be in our house. Why comedies, but not dramas for the most part? Was that something that same would... thing with dramas? We we same target. We owned the ensemble drama, oh. Homicide, Life on right. the Street, ER, Law and Order. All those dramas were ensemble urban dramas with diverse cast members and and themes that really reflected the world we lived in. Mm. And so that strategy resonated. We separated ourselves from our competition. We we weren't narrowly defined, but we were better defined than our competition. Mm-hmm. One scheduling week made up t-shirts that had a horse and the international no around it. And it was like, yeah, no, we're not the network where you get horses, right? <laughs> and we don't do that. Right. And that strategy worked quite well for audiences, for advertisers. And, and then we did a lot of wraparounds. We shrunk credits. We, we produced ins and outs because we realized we were invited into the viewer's home when they watched NBC for only at best a number of hours a day. Not, so don't lose them in the transitions. Right. So so who are you? Mm-hmm. Well, our message of who we are through our product mm-hmm. and the way our product was presented needed to be more uniform, more cohesive. Mm-hmm. It needed to be an NBC experience. Mm-hmm. And our competition quickly studied us. Yes. They followed us. But we were ahead of it. Because we had just figured it out before they did. Well, just to speak about how far ahead of it you guys were, from June 1988 through October 1989, NBC finished first in the Nielsen ratings for an unprecedented 68 weeks in a row. In 1990, Tartikoff becomes the head of NBC, and you finally succeed him as the entertainment president. Top of the Rock, as your book is called. Seinfeld premieres. Yes, Seinfeld. Well, before we even get to that, though, so here it is. It's 1990. How would you describe the network that you inherited and also the sense that, you know, you, you you comment in your book, quote, my timing sucked. We'd had a good run, but our shows were old. 
In the fall of 1991, The Cosby Show was entering its eighth season, The Golden Girls at seventh, L.A. Law at sixth. Viewership was off for each, and our general audience numbers across the schedule had plunged by double digits in a year's time. We'd managed to win the May sweeps, but it was the barest of victories. We were neck and neck with CBS and ABC after leading the pack throughout the 80s. Brandon had timed his departure impeccably. I found myself holding both an exalted new title, NBC Entertainment President, and the bag. So that's what you walk into. But the sense was you got to maintain this standing as, you know, it's like, where can you go, right? Number two was not an option. Not an option. Not an option. Right. Yeah. No, look, I, I felt my mentor had trained me well, but yeah. I, I was like, oh, my God, this is something I really had wanted, the opportunity to run NBC Entertainment. And I felt I was ready. Looking at our schedule, maybe I wasn't. Mm-hmm. And and so it was a time where we needed to reinvent the network. We needed to understand that the world was filled with far more competition. And who would we be? We looked to shows from our past like Cheers. Mm -hmm. We look to shows from our past like Hill Street Blues. And that told us about kind of the DNA, a certain sensibility that we wanted to emulate, but we needed the content. Mm -hmm. And you're only as good as the your up and comers, Mm -hmm. your shows that are young and growing. So there was a lot to be done. And to, in a sense, further blow the wind at your face that you were having to overcome, you also, and you reference this in the book, and and we won't harp on it here, but just to contextualize what it's like to be in that job and some of the things that somebody runs into, there was another position created as you assumed your position as president of entertainment, which I think was called West Coast president, and this is Don Olmeyer. And where did he come from and what was he supposed to be doing? Because I know that in some ways, he might have been a, a thorn in, in your behind. Oh, he was. <laughs> no question about right. it. Don had a sports background. He had been a producer of Monday Night Football, mm-hmm. early investor in ESPN, mm-hmm. had his own company, was entrepreneurial, highly competitive guy. And I think that New York management thought that there was some muscle that, that Don might bring. And Don's timing was good. Because once Don came in, we had the seeds of of a future. Mm-hmm. Seinfeld was there, and right. Frasier, and then Friends, and uh, you know Don asked a lot of questions, and sometimes that would be unbelievably frustrating to have to answer them mm-hmm. all. But it was a process where we prospered, and so you know it's hard to argue with the results, right. and and it. It became the modern era and led to a triumphant 90s and resurgence for the network. And really, the the moment that you have described as sort of the turning point, in a sense, of where this could have gone in a very different direction but, but actually became positive was when you get a call from Ted Danson in, I guess, 1993, at the end of 93, saying what? Ted said, I can't be Sam Malone anymore. I need to be Ted. He had done 11 years of Cheers, which is pretty spectacular. Outstanding, award-winning, truly, truly entertaining comedy. Mm -hmm. And he, the, the gentleman that he was, he was like, don't throw money at me. 
I'm making a decision for me. Really high road approach mm-hmm. to take, right? Mm-hmm. Although I had no hits. I, I mean, I was down to I had nothing. <laughs> Cheers was the, Cheers was the only right. the only light that was still on, and and I was like, oh my god, I'm screwed. <laughs> but I think that kind of back to the wall. Now you're going to have to run the hurry up offense. Mm-hmm. You're going to have to develop your ass off. <laughs> you're going to have to get some really terrific programming because that's it. They're going into their final year of cheers. We better come up with some hits or there will be nothing. And there was no question in my mind I wouldn't be there. <laughs> and the silver lining, though, I guess you, you came to find was that the departure of cheers freed up a lot of resources. I mean, Ted was making $400,000 an episode, right? Yeah. It, you know, look, we, the success, yeah. you could pay for success. Yeah. So we would have gladly, we would have loved to have had more cheers. But- I think it put pep in our step. It it gave a sensibility to all of the programmers of we need to be reckless. We need to go for it. We need to come up with our future because we can't rely on the past. And that was a good wake-up call for us ultimately because we hit a renaissance after that. Well, yeah, and very soon after that because the 94 pilot season for NBC has become – legendary. Maybe you can just share what came out of that. Really, I guess the first time you now had to come up with stuff post-chairs. Yeah. That year, a remarkable development led with comedy with Friends. And Friends was a high week as a test, looking at the research results. We loved it. We thought we had captured kind of the voice of a new generation. It was young, it was fun, a fantastic ensemble of six young adults that had very little exposure prior to that show, here and there, but we really thought we had something, and so what do you do with your best and brightest? You put it on Thursday night, (laughs) and so Friends started at 8.30 on Thursday. That year also, though, we knew we were saying goodbye to L.A. Law, and out of development came ER. Mm-hmm. So that year, Friends and ER, <laughs> Friends lasted a decade, right. award-winning, ratings-getting, knockout comedy mm-hmm. for 10 straight years and ER for 15. Yeah. So it may have, may go down in the books as uh, the greatest development season so. ever. And, and the year after that, Friends found its audience right in 95, really, at a, as you say, had a slow start. But the other amazing thing, which even a previous guest on our podcast talked about, Jerry Seinfeld, was saying he still is trying to understand they did not like Seinfeld for the first couple of years on Wednesday nights, I think, <laughs> but they put it on Thursday, meaning you, yeah. and all of a sudden that now caught on in a huge way. And so that happened as well in in 95. So 94. It surpassed Cheers, actually. It surpassed almost immediately the Cheers performance, which was truly remarkable. Uh, Larry David, of course, said, well, I don't want to go to Thursday. If they didn't watch us on Wednesday, why do I want them to watch us on on Thursday? That you No. Know. Wednesday, we were up against Home Improvement, mm-hmm. the number one comedy on television. Mm-hmm. And we were getting like a 19 share, and they were getting 38s. Mm-hmm. But Seinfeld was ready, and when they moved to Thursday, it exploded. Amazing. Just a 
quick aside, a person who comes up throughout your book and is associated with many of the shows from Cheers through Friends and on and on during this era is James Burroughs. And he had been one of the co-creators and executive producers of Friends and then directed, I think, almost every episode of Cheers, Taxi, Friends, and, and others. What made him and makes him, I think, still so good? He wonderfully works with the actors to not over-rehearse them, but take them to a point where they feel their best is yet to come. And that's right before show night, before you perform in front of the audience. And so his work with the actors is sensational. He, he'll, he'll say something of uh, watching him work, it'd be like, no, 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 don't, don't push the bowl with your left hand, push the bowl with your right hand. And somehow that <laughs> is funnier. And, and, and so he's remarkable, and the actors trust him. But his work is equally strong with the writers. He's able to say throughout the week of, of rehearsal and, and, and putting the show on its feet and running it, he's able to say to the writers, I need this, I need this, I think we're not getting this. And so he's directing the writing staff as well as the actors, I think, with equal strength. And it all comes together and it's magic. Yeah. Uh, so there is no must-see TV on NBC without Jimmy Burroughs. Wow. So your nine years as the president of entertainment at NBC, 1990 through October 98, first of all, were, were there any major regrets? Were there, was there a show that got away? Was there something you didn't do that, that kind of to this day you think about? I always uh, feel like I'm... There were balls I dropped. We had a Brandon Falsey drama, A Year in a Life, which we kicked off as a miniseries and then was a series. And it was remarkable. It was wonderful. It was heartfelt and it was funny. And it was a family drama. Hard to find family dramas. You know, most dramas are procedural. Mm -hmm. You know, they have those kinds of engines. This was a family drama. And I think we cut that off too soon. Is it true that Roseanne had been a show that could have been at NBC? Oh, uh, well, yeah. Uh, one of my biggest mistakes was uh, being invited by Marcy Carcy to go to Universal Amphitheater and watch Roseanne Barr perform live. And that night, Budweiser was sponsoring it. It was Roseanne Barr and Louie Anderson. <laughs> and I thought Roseanne was kind of gross. <laughs> the female audience was enjoying it. Right. I, and I absolutely admitted that. But... I was not digging on Roseanne. I kept saying, what about Louie? What about <laughs> Louie? And, and Marcy said to me, forget Louie. It's Roseanne. You're going to have to give me, you know, you're going to have to guarantee four or six episodes or something. And I was like, all right, let me think about it. Mm -hmm. And I went back and because it was Marcy Carsey and Tom Werner and they were the executive producers of, of the Cosby show and, and a different world. And I said, look, I, I can't flat out give them nothing. So I said, look, well, I'll give you a pilot. And, and they said, the pilot won't get it done. And I said, well, you know, that, that's your call. Yeah. You believe in her and, and you won't get this. Mm -hmm. And so it became a monster hit on ABC. But at that point, I was uh, fortunately developing a number of successful shows. Yeah, right. and, and I was able to withstand that hit. Right. Yeah. So – what was it? I mean, it seems like 
the the life of an executive at at any studio or network or whatever. I mean, to last nine years at the top is an amazing thing. What was it in in your understanding or or your interpretation that despite such enviable success like what we've just talked about led in your case to the end of that tenure? Oh, ultimately, I just collided with Don Olmeyer. You know, he was a bully. And I think I I felt I protected my team and all my programmers for a long time and and fought for product that I believed in. And, and we had a great deal of success. Um, you know, things like Will and Grace, he said, why would you develop that? And I said, because I could, because I can, <laughs> and I believe in it. And we'll see, you know, we'll see. I, I have hopes. We'll see. We'll see what happens. But wasn't the the West Wing was I think another one that you were behind? Yeah, yeah. NFL keeping it at NBC. You wanted to do right? Yeah. Some but of these things. but you know, I I I just finally I stood up probably too many times, and and Don was my boss, and and he got to decide who he wanted to play ball with. And ultimately, uh, so I, I had 20 years at the network. Mm-hmm. And it was devastating to me at the time, but I think ultimately change is good. Mm-hmm. Uh, I couldn't see it at the time, sure. but I think that it allowed me to kind of find myself and, and define myself outside of the network guy. And interestingly enough, the book, Top of the Rock, you, the way you described it, in the intro, I believe, was that as you left that job at NBC, you you put all your papers and photos and everything in storage and then for 10 years left it all alone. And when you revisited it, you realized there was actually a, a great story to to share with, with all of us, which is what led to the book, right? That's exactly right. I felt that it probably wasn't healthy for me to live in the past mm-hmm. and I had to kind of find my future. And so I didn't want an office decorated with all NBC memorabilia. <laughs> I had so many boxes and so much storage <laughs> stuff. And, and I'm really proud of the past, but I thought it was just healthier to live in the present. And then going to that storage unit one day, kind of, I don't know what I was searching for at the time, but I was looking for something and, and looking in those boxes, I said, well, maybe it's time. I, mm-hmm. I, I've been away long enough. I think I can... I think I can go back now. I will say something for you that I feel like you must be thinking, but you you might be too nice to say, which is that by the time 10 years had passed since you left NBC, things had not gotten better, right? I mean, In retrospect, yeah. they looked very kindly on me yeah. <laughs> in the years that followed. May I um, quote my colleague Tim Goodman, who at the time was with the San Francisco Gate. In December 2000, he wrote, in reference to you, quote, NBC has been pathetic ever since he left, close quote. And and you were not, you did not say that, but in your book, you do share the fact that you were not a big fan of the approach of one of your successors, Jeff Zucker, who was actually, who actually gifted us with, with Donald Trump through The Apprentice. And it was almost a particular front because they put The Apprentice on Thursday night, right? They did, Thursday at nine. That, and why was that the idea of reality intruding upon Thursday night was was very offensive to you? Why? We had we had a pact with a generation. We had more than twenty years of high quality night of bests, must see TV, where Thursday was a destination for the highest quality of comedy 
and drama. Mm-hmm. And I think for Jeff Zucker, it was just a time period. There was no sense of history. Um, and it was just, you know, let me throw the Donald in there, <laughs> screaming, you're fired. And that was a stopgap kind of a measure where content was just fill a time period. Yeah. As I said, it was a pact with the audience, a bond. And that ended the era. Yeah. In the meantime, while while they were still struggling to figure themselves out, you were moving on with a, a very impressive career as an independent or returning, I guess, to the career you'd had before NBC as an independent producer. And this was, I guess, all under the auspices of Littlefield Productions or was it different names? Yeah, this was the Littlefield Company. Littlefield I la- company. launched that when I left. And and I, I think after 20 years in NBC, I had a better sense of what that was all about, of how to develop content. But there was so much for me to learn because in the seat of a buyer is a very different dynamic than um, trying to create content and find underlying IP and find content and put a creative package together and make it. And you have been an executive producer of, among other things, My Generation, Fargo, and now The Handmaid's Tale, which which we'll talk about. But I just want to ask you, why did you, as a guy who had spent most of his life in broadcast, come out and end up with those shows being on not broadcast, cable in the case of Fargo, streaming in the case now of The Handmaid's Tale. Had the world outside of broadcast changed so much that even you were now not necessarily a believer that broadcast was the place to take great programming? Well, I think uh, my DVR kind of is an inside look at who I really am, right? (laughs) I think it's probably true for everyone. And the content that I covet, that I that it fills up my DVR is, is really cable content. I started my early producing career, once I left the network, selling shows to network. It's what I knew. It's what I did. And the process was frustrating. And I wasn't loving the content that I was doing. And then I got very excited in bringing a uh, format to Noah Hawley, getting to work with Noah, and we did My Generation, and they were very excited about it at ABC. We put it on their fall schedule, but they put it on Thursday at 8 o'clock where dramas go to die, <laughs> and it lasted two episodes. And so that was it. That was it. Mm. I was like, you know what? I won't say never, mm-hmm. but my efforts are going to be really in the kinds of things that I love to watch. Mm-hmm. and. And I've done very little network development or product sense. I'm really enjoying life in in cable and streaming, and it's a very different creative experience. So everybody loves Fargo. I'm not even going to focus too much on that because we all all, over the last couple of years have come to know and love that. But the the new exciting thing, which I've so enjoyed getting a little advanced look at here, is The Handmaid's Tale, which just to – contextualized for people. Margaret Atwood wrote the book in 1984. It was turned into a movie in 1990. Why did you and your collaborators feel that it ought to be revived for uh, as a TV series in 2017? I mean, it, it works great now. Well, but- Margaret's book was written 32 years ago. It's never been out of print. 
It's been developed as a play, as an opera, as a, they did the movie in 1990. It's always been an incredible vision of a world. And it's a dark world, but the, the power of that content has always been there. It was not my idea to do The Handmaid's Tale. That started with MGM developing a, a, a script uh, with Showtime, and ultimately that didn't go forward. They decided that they would find another writer. They set it up at Hulu. Hulu was excited for jumping back into that content. They hired Bruce Miller mm -hmm. as the creator showrunner. Bruce had a wonderful, wonderful take, had read Margaret's book in college, and a great take on how to present it today in an alternative world. Mm -hmm. One that's recognizable, but not quite the world we live in today. So there's a dystopia, and women have been denied all of their rights and freedoms. Essentially, they're sexual slaves. Mm -hmm. But the character of Offred, played by Elizabeth Moss, mm -hmm. she's really playing two characters in this present dystopia. She's Offred, mm -hmm. but she was June, June in a world that, that is more recognizable to us. And Bruce wrote two scripts. And then my agents at uh, William Morris Agency, William Morris Endeavor, said to me, Lizzie Moss is interested. We want someone of your caliber, your Fargo credentials. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If Lizzie was going to do this, she needs someone like you to protect her. Had you dealt with her when you were trying to put together the West Wing? I had never met never Lizzie met Moss. Yeah. I was an enormous fan of her yeah. work on West Wing, but that was after I left NBC. Right. And of course, Mad Men. Mad Men. And, and, Top of the lake. And so they said, yes, Top loved it. And so they said, take a look at this material, see if it's of interest. I had my own development. I was slowly ramping up Fargo year three. Mm -hmm. So on no practical level did this make sense until I read <laughs> Bruce's material and I was blown away by the power of it. So I got on the phone with Lizzie and I said, look, you have lots of choices in your life. I've got some good choices in mm -hmm. mine. If you do this, I'll do it. Mm -hmm. And she said, I think we have to do it. <laughs> and so, so that's when I jumped in and, and became an executive producer of Handmaid's Tale. Folks at home will get a chance to see the first three episodes on April 26th. The critics have already seen at least the first, and the reaction has been tremendous. And I wonder how much, you know, a lot of people have observed, I guess when you were making this, you could not have known the outcome of, of what was going to happen in November, right? When did you wrap things we up? We went into production in the summer. So we were, you know, it was the primaries, and it was it was expected that Hillary Clinton would be president. Mm -hmm. We always felt a tremendous responsibility to do a wonderful job of Margaret Atwood's book, mm -hmm. bringing that to life. We, we, we just felt, wow, uh, this is an important story. We woke up in Toronto in November and went, I think we feel this ever more than ever mm -hmm. before. Now, we had watched the rise of the alt-right we had seen a lot of politics of hate, mm -hmm. and we have been feeling and watching women's rights become come more into question, mm -hmm. women's control over their bodies. Um, so, so everything 
rapidly became more relevant than we ever expected. Religious fundamentalism, the environmental destruction, misogyny, all these things that seem unfortunately super timely. But my colleagues who we were we were having a staff meeting, I think it was this morning, I'm all kind of a blur, but we were talking about this show and, and everybody's curious how, you know, you mentioned being faithful to the book, but sadly the book ends at a certain point. Is this a a finite commitment to where this goes, or could this no, go where the book didn't it's, go? It's a, it's a, it's a series. Yeah. It's not a limited series. Right. So year one is ten hours. The first three hours um, will be on Hulu on April twenty sixth. Mm-hmm. I probably should uh, blow my horn here and yeah. say Rotten Tomatoes yes. gave it a one hundred. That's pretty amazing. There are not a lot of one hundreds no, on Rotten no. Tomatoes, no. and that wasn't a typo. So I'm really proud of <laughs> Congratulations. that. And uh, Metacritic uh, has it at a ninety eight, and that would be Sopranos year four. So it's been. Uh, tremendous, it's had tremendous critical acclaim already. Lizzie Moss is spectacular in this role. And there's an outstanding cast surrounding Mm -hmm. her and supporting her. Mm -hmm. So it's a, it's a thriller. It just also feels relevant in the world that we're living in today. If I may, with the last two minutes, just big picture stuff. So first of all, I hate to have to even bring this particular topic up, but the Cosby show was a a key part of of the NBC era when you guys were experiencing so much success there. And over the last few years, obviously, you know, a lot of things have have come to light. And I just wonder for you, even looking back when you, you know, you come across the Cosby show on reruns or whatever, what goes through your mind? Well, it was a monumental show in television history because African-Americans had never been presented that way before. It was a family comedy, but you had a lawyer, you had a doctor Mm -hmm. who happened to be African-American. And there were a lot of wonderful family values in the show. And it was noted that when Barack Obama became president, there was a nod to the Cosby show Mm -hmm. for what we put out into the world. There was a nod with Will, Will and Grace, Grace yeah, that's great. for marriage equality. So television can affect lives, and really, really proud of that. Uh, the issues that have come forward, the number of women who have come forward with accusations about Bill's actions, it's horrible and, and really disturbing and sad. We weren't aware of anything at the time. I had never... Uh, you know, I'm not a stranger to controversy mm-hmm. with talent. And, you know, we had actors through the years who needed to go into rehab and there were there were issues that needed to be dealt with. Nothing ever came to, to light, certainly never came to me that there was an issue with Bill. But apparently, and it hasn't been proven in court, mm-hmm. but the allegations are horrific. Mm-hmm. It's deeply, deeply disturbing and sad. Is there any scenario under which you would work at a broadcast network again. Oh, no. No, <laughs> you're done. I'm having too much fun. I don't think they want me. I, I mean, you know, you, it's important to, to reinvent and go through all the things that we did in the 90s to do that. You know, look, it's always an honor to be asked for things, but I'm, I'm having such a wonderful yeah. time. Rather than juggling 100 balls, I juggle a dozen. Yeah. And, and the depth of the creative experience is wonderfully satisfying to me. When you do look at NBC, which obviously there's now 
probably the vast majority of people are are people that weren't there when you were there. It's now Bob Greenblatt. What do you make of, you know, you see This Is Us or you see the live musicals or you see now they're bringing back Will and Grace. What's your take on NBC today? You know, I think they're doing a number of things really well. Mm -hmm. I love This Is Us. It's probably about my only network Mm -hmm. series show that I that I seek out. I think Dan Fogelman, who I had the pleasure of doing a series with, his first half-hour comedy, Dan Fogelman is a genius. He's inspired. I laugh and I cry when yeah. I watch that show. And that's great. Yeah. Uh, uh, good for him and good for NBC for doing it. The live musicals are events. Mm-hmm. That's, that's, a, that's wonderful. Networks are still the home of uh, the NFL. That's powerful. Mm-hmm. That, that really works well. So, you know, I also get to go back and say they still have Law & Order SVU, yes. Yes. and that was my development. Right. So right. uh, I, st- I still— <laughs> You live on. <laughs> yeah, so uh, Bob Greenblatt, good on you. And Will and & Grace, are you happy that they're coming I'm thrilled. Yeah. You know, I, I love the show. That cast is amazing, and, you know, I— uh, I would just love to be in the audience yeah. again and enjoy it. I, I'm going to look forward to that. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good thing. Final question. We've obviously looked over your uh, entire amazing body of work here. Is there one thing, professional, personal, whatever it may be, that having now, you know, again, revisited all of this that, that you feel proudest about? There's a lot of children that I love. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And look, I think Seinfeld was something that the research was so abominable. (laughs) It was so meant to die. And, you know, we threw on four episodes in the summer of 1990, and it was okay. It was was original content in in a sea of reruns. And somehow I was able to say, we can't let it die, or we can't let it go away. And... It's tremendous rise to success, changing the world of of comedy as we know it, which used to be a two-act, seven-scene structure, to the complex, brilliant, warped, multiple stories that Larry David would weave and and bring to us. It, It changed the landscape for comedy. And so to help be a protector of that and fan that flame and get out of Jerry and Larry's way. Mm -hmm. Even when we couldn't see it, I'm enormously proud of that. But I also, honestly, as happy as I am and as proud as I am of my past, I love to be living in the present. Mm -hmm. And so this month I celebrate that I'm a part of Fargo and Handmaid's Tale. Amazing. And that is wildly, wildly exciting for me. And it's a reason why I don't sleep. (laughs) Well, on behalf of myself and my generation, thank you for our childhood television. This was fantastic to grow up with Seinfeld and Friends and all of these shows and now to have several more. So thank you for that and thank you for this. I really appreciate it. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. 
This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.